Well, good morning, everyone. What I'm going to do is first give what I'm calling a pre-introduction. I'm going to give a little introduction to the three talks of today, and then I'll actually give the talk of today. Does that make sense? Okay. I mean, the first of the three talks of today. Um, so this talk and the next two are on metaphysics, and I want to begin by explaining how they fit together with each other and how they fit into the series of talks for this weekend, the series as a whole. The first talk um, last night laid out some critical issues and pointed us toward a positive, constructive solution, trying to understand the philosophy of Aquinas. The last three talks, tomorrow and uh, Monday morning, will explore the existence and nature and activity of God. But in between, there are today's three talks. And they are about the basic structure and nature of the created world. And they, these talks are presented partly for their own sake and partly with a view towards getting us prepared to grapple with the God material later on. What these three talks have in common is, as I mentioned, that they focus on the nature of the created world. They focus on what created things are like as opposed to how we know about them or how we talk about them. <coughs> because they focus on what created things are like, we can call them metaphysical talks. But in fact, they also include material that for Aquinas would belong not only to metaphysics, but also to the philosophy of nature, or physics, if you like to speak Greek. In some contexts, it's important to keep an eye on the distinction between metaphysics and the philosophy of nature. But in this context, it isn't. So I'm going to switch back and forth between metaphysical topics and philosophy of nature topics without warning. You might, you might put it this way. I'll be changing lanes a lot without putting my turn signal on. But this is a closed course. <laughs> and I'm a professional driver. <laughs> so I think no one will get hurt. So the first um, of the talks will be very general. It will focus on the two most basic kinds of beings that there are, substances and accidents. The second of the three talks will focus on one specific issue, causation. And the third of the talks will focus on another specific issue, namely goodness. All right? So that's the pre-introduction. Now I'm going to actually turn to the actual first talk. Introduction. <laughs> <laughs> As I just mentioned, this particular talk will present the two most basic kinds of being, substance and accident. It will begin by giving a general account of them. I'm just going to explain what they are in a general way. Then it will explain how some beings, some of the things that exist are corporeal and others are not. This is actually extremely difficult material. We'll see what we can do. Then it will get into a discussion of how all beings whether or not they are corporeal, involve two important aspects, namely potentiality and actuality. And then that will lead into um, 
it will give us a chance to catch a glimpse of a very important distinction in Aquinas' thought, namely the distinction between essence and existence. Okay, so I'm going to be standing in front of this a lot. I can, after I wrote it, I realized I had written it in the wrong place. But <laughs> there it is. Okay. So, let's talk about substance and accident. For Aquinas, there are two basic kinds of beings, substances and accidents. Both of those words are likely to be misleading, unfortunately. We don't mean substance in the sense of, excuse me, but I'm afraid there's a sticky green substance on the cuff of your pants. And we don't mean accident in the sense of, today I was nearly in a car accident. Now, if it was 2,000 years ago and we were in charge of choosing the philosophical terminology, we might not choose these words. But it's not 2,000 years ago and we're not in charge of choosing the philosophical terminology. It's just too late, so we're going to have to deal with it. So try, if you can, to ignore the prior associations you have with these words. Rather than thinking about what we might be inclined to think these words mean, let's just sort of forget about the words. Let's talk about some examples of things that Aquinas would call substances and accidents. So start with things. The following are substances. You, me, Socrates, a cat like Rusty, and maybe a rock. The following, so those are all substances. The following are accidents. Your feeling of boredom, my action of speaking, Socrates' wisdom, Rusty's agility, the rock's weight. Those are accidents. Substances are roughly what we might be inclined to call things. You, me, Rusty, the rock. Accidents are roughly what we might be inclined to call not things, but rather features or attributes or properties of things. The weight of the rock, the agility of Rusty, your feeling of boredom, my action of speaking, Socrates' wisdom. Now, it's true. Socrates, uh, Rusty's agility, it's not nothing. You might even say it's something. If we made a list of everything in the world, we might include Rusty's agility on that list. Still, we also might want to say, and here I'm going to use the suggestion of the uh, late Jonathan Lowe. Um, he says, well, although Rusty's agility might appear on the list of everything, as Lowe puts it, not everything is a thing. You see? So not everything is a thing. Some things aren't things, but instead features of things. Or if you insist that all features are things, still, features are things in a rather different sense of thing from the sense in which cats are things. Cats are thing-things. <laughs> things in the most basic and important sense. The features of cats are things only in a secondary and a derivative sense. Now, why on earth would anyone call a rock or a cat a substance? In Latin, a substance is something that stands under something else. 
And the substance might be said to stand under its features in the sense that they depend on it. Without Rusty, there's no Rusty's agility either. And again in Latin, an accident is something that, that happens or that happens to be. And often enough, an accident is a feature of something that it, it the something, just so happens to have. Rusty is agile, but he might have been clumsy. I'm speaking, but I might fall silent. So the problem with these words isn't actually that they're stupid words. <laughs> the problem is that they're excruciatingly literal translations of perfectly sensible Latin words. So this was meant to give you a rough, intuitive, initial look at the distinction between substance and accident. Now I want to go over substance and accident again, this time giving an account that is somewhat more detailed and rigorous. Somewhat. Let's start with substances and let's, and let's list four main truths about them. They are individuals, they subsist, they stand under accidents, and they're unified. You'll get the list again. So first, they're individuals. To say that substances are individuals is to contrast them with universals. A universal is something like humanity or felinity, right? catness. A universal is a general kind that can have examples or instances. You and I are instances of humanity. Rusty is an instance or example of felinity. We're not universals. We're individuals. There can't be instances or examples of us. True, there might be someone who is very, very similar to you or to me or to Rusty, but they would not be instances of us. So an individual is an instance, and also it's something that there can't be an instance of. It's a non-instantiable instance. Okay? And all substances are individuals. Second, substances subsist. I mean, that looks like to stay barely alive by eating nuts and berries. <laughs> but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that. Um, Substances subsist, which is a technical philosophical word that means that they exist independently in a special sense of independence. <laughs> now, there is not time here to spell out that special sense in precise detail, but I think doing so isn't really necessary. The point is not that substances don't depend in any way on anything. We all depend on oxygen. I mean, we all. The rocks don't. But... We depend on oxygen, everything depends on God, so some kinds of dependence are consistent with subsistence. A being um, is subsistent, or it subsists, if it's freestanding rather than being a part or a feature of something else. So Rusty subsists because even though he depends on God and oxygen and so on, he doesn't depend in the way that accidents do. There's nothing he belongs to in the way that a color belongs to a surface or an, an agility belongs to a cat. 
substances don't depend in that way. Now, it's possible that at this point you're starting to become a little bit suspicious of my manner of procedure here. In explaining what a substance is, I've appealed to the notion of accident. When I get to explaining what an accident is, am I going to appeal to the notion of substance? And wouldn't that just be moving in a circle? The answer is that yes, in a way, it is moving in a circle, but that's okay. And the reason it's okay is that I'm not trying to define substance and accident independently of one another. And also, I'm not trying to define one of them in terms of the other, but not vice versa. Instead, I'm presenting them to you together as a pair. We don't start with the notion of substance and then later arrive at the notion of accident. And likewise, we don't start with the notion of accident and then later arrive at the notion of substance. Instead, we arrive at both of them together by making a distinction. <clears throat> In the primordial mists of pre-metaphysical thinking, we are dimly aware of stuff, beings, whatever. And then at some point, we make a distinction. Some of that stuff out there is subsisting and some of it isn't. Some of it is independent, some of it's dependent. Some of it is a thing thing, and some of it is a kind of sort of thing. So the reasoning would be circular and bad if we were trying to start from one and move to the other, but we aren't. We arrive at both together. So in that way, in a sort of analogous sense, substance and accident are a pair like male and female, up and down, positive and negative. All right. So let me get back on track now, after having um, calmed your fears. Um, the third thing to say about substances is that they stand under features, they substand them, by being the independent entities that features depend on. Socrates substands his wisdom, Rusty substands his agility, and so forth. It's an interesting question whether it's merely normal for substances to substand accidents or whether it's an ironclad rule that they absolutely have to. The possible exception to think about here is God. God doesn't have any accidents. We'll see why below. So if God is a substance, then he would be the one exception, the substance that doesn't have accidents. All right, the final mark of substance, this is number four, is unity. Think of a pile of sand. Each grain of sand is an individual. Each grain of sand subsists. Each grain of sand substands certain sandy accidents. I don't know what the features of sand are. Um, does that make the pile a substance? The answer is no, because the pile isn't unified, or else it isn't unified enough. Not in the, and it's not unified in the right way. A pile of sand isn't a substance. It is perhaps a pile. It isn't a substance. It is perhaps a pile of substances. It's not a thing. It's a bunch of things. And by the way, that's why I um, said when I was giving the list of substances in the very beginning, and I said maybe a rock. That's an interest. A rock is an interesting question. Is it actually just a bunch of tiny little things stuck together, or is it? a unified thing? That's a hard question. 
Okay. If Aquinas is right about all this, then there's something misleading about a certain idea that most of us take for granted nowadays. Namely, that physical objects like cats are collections of tiny objects like atoms. If that were all there was to it, then for Aquinas, a cat wouldn't really be a substance at all. It would be a bunch of substances hanging out together, admittedly in a very complicated and sophisticated way. If Aquinas is right, it would be better to say that although there might seem to be little atoms or whatever in a cat, in truth, it's really just tiny cat pieces that seem like atoms. Now this sounds crazy, perhaps, but if you talk to people who know a lot about chemistry and physics, it starts to seem that it might not be quite so crazy as it sounds. When atoms, or whatever, enter into combinations, their properties change a lot. You can try to say that they are really atoms only acting in a super strange fashion, but maybe they aren't atoms at all. I can't get into this topic here. It's extremely important and extremely difficult. Um, but you need to sort of be aware of it. And it's already come up in conversations. I mean, it, it just comes up naturally. So I'm just raising it as an issue, something to be worried about. <laughs> so like when you're waiting for the bus, <laughs> think about this kind of thing. So a substance is an independently subsisting individual that is unified and that supports accidents. But what should we say about the accidents themselves? Accidents, as we know already, are items like redness, roundness, agility, wisdom, and so on. It's by having these that substances have many of the features that they have. Rusty is red because he has his redness. Socrates is wise because he has his wisdom. To have an accident is thus to have a certain kind of feature. But it is worth noting that in order to have an accident, the substance has to already exist. By acquiring wisdom, Socrates becomes wise. But in order to become wise, Socrates has to be there in the first place. So accidents make substances exist in certain ways, but they don't make them exist at the most basic level. A second point about accidents is this. By making Socrates wise, Socrates' wisdom accident actualizes his potentiality to be wise. So I'm giving a sneak peek of something we're going to talk about later. By making Socrates wise, Socrates' wisdom accident actualizes his potency to be wise. Likewise, by making Rusty agile, Rusty's agility actualizes his potentiality to be agile. The general point is that accidents actualize potentialities of their sub subjects. And that, by the way, is why God can't have accidents. God has no potentialities. He has no capacity to become other than he already is. So he just can't have accidents. A third point about accidents is this. They are caused by the substances that they belong to. 
That might sound funny, but think of it this way. Rusty's furriness is one of his accidents, and he has that accident because he's a cat. Rusty's agility is also one of his accidents, and he has that accident because he's a cat. Now, when I say because here, I don't mean that being a cat is sufficient for being agile, or even for being furry. There are non-agile cats and even non-furry cats. But in Rusty's case, what sets the stage for his being furry or for his being agile is his being feline, his being a cat. He, by having the nature he does, is responsible, at least in part, for having the accidents that he does. The issue here um, is complicated. Dogs are furry too, and they're furry because they're dogs, even while cats are furry because they're cats. Should we say instead that both cats and dogs are furry because they are mammals? Perhaps so, but in any case, the substance itself, by having the nature it has, is responsible for having the accidents that it has. So although accidents happen to the substance, the substance itself has a lot to say over which accidents happen to it. Prime numbers can't become furry. Dogs can't become wise. Above, I said that accidents make their substances exist in a certain way, for example, as agile, but that they don't make them exist at the most basic level. You might then ask, what does make a substance exist at the most basic level? The answer is its nature, also known as its essence. Socrates is human, and his humanity is not just a fancy accident. It's not something added on to him to make him human as opposed to something else. Prior to his being human, there's no him there at all. It's not added to him because it's responsible for him existing in the first place. It's his deepest and most fundamental level of being. It makes him exist as a substance, a substance of the human kind. Here's an analogy of sorts. An accident is like a sweater. You can put a sweater onto a person or onto a dog or whatever. The sweater is added to the person or the dog, and the person or the dog wears it. But nothing wears humanity. Nothing wears dogness. A person or a dog is what's there at the most basic and fundamental level the level that makes sweater wearing possible. Humanity or dogness doesn't get added to something. Instead, it's what makes there be something there in the first place, something to which the sweater can be added. There's more to say about the contrast between accidents and essences. When we describe substances, sometimes we describe them in terms of their accidents. We say they are agile or red. Sometimes we describe them in terms of their essences. We say that they are dogs or humans. Now, it's clear enough that nothing can exist without its nature or essence. If Rusty ceases to be a cat, he just doesn't exist anymore. And it's also clear that for most of Rusty's accidents, 
It's not like that. Most of Rusty's accidents are things he can lose. He can have a stroke and cease to be agile, for example. But is that true of all of Rusty's accidents? Most contemporary philosophers would say yes, but Aquinas would say no. For Aquinas, as for Aristotle and Aristotelians generally, there's a special class of accidents that the substance can't live without. A triangle, for example, is by nature a three-sided figure. It's having interior angles that add up to 180 degrees is an accident, but it's an accident that it, the triangle, can't exist without. Likewise, a human is by nature a rational animal. It's being the sort of thing that can laugh is an accident, but an accident that it cannot exist without. This is a classic example in the Aristotelian tradition. The ability to laugh, risibility, just everybody has it. Although apparently in some people it's very, very deeply buried. <laughs> um, so these special accents, and sometimes they're called properties, using that word now in a very technical way. These special accidents are like essences in that the substance can't live without them, but they are still accidents because they are non-fundamental and they are caused rather than being the fundamental principles that give rise to the substance in the first place. I've given various examples of accidents. Is there a way to give an organized list of accidents or any way of types of accidents? Aquinas thinks there is. He says, he's following Aristotle again, that there are nine basic types of accidents. So if you're the kind of person who likes writing things down, get ready. <laughs> they are quality, such as redness, quantity, such as weighing 10 pounds, relation, such as being the father of so-and-so, Action, such as jumping. Passion, such as being trapped. Place, such as existing in this room. Time, such as existing today. Posture, such as standing or sitting. And habit, such as wearing shoes or packing heat. <laughs> Those nine categories of accidents, plus the category substance, this all gives us the famous ten categories of Aristotle. I should mention that other Aristotelian-minded philosophers think that this list is really too long, and that some of these categories can and should be eliminated by being boiled down to some others. The easiest way to see the, the issue here is to consider the category of habit, such as wearing shoes or clothing or carrying a weapon. Why isn't this just an example of a relation, a relation to your shoes or to your pistol? This is an interesting question. We're not going to get into it. <laughs> so to summarize what's been said so far, substances are individual, unified, subsisting beings with natures. And those natures give rise to potentialities to receive certain accidents. Accidents which 
actualize those potentialities and thereby make those substances wise, red, agile, or whatever. And while substances and accidents are both beings, substances are beings in the primary sense, while accidents are being in a secondary sense. Similarly, substances are what act, at least in the primary sense. It's not Rusty's agility that brings down the mouse, but Rusty himself acting by means of his agility. Now we're going to switch to corporeal versus incorporeal. This is also really hard. I don't know, everything's hard, it's philosophy. <laughs> so, so that's all I want to say about substances and accidents. Now I want to say something about the corporeal and the incorporeal, the bodily and the non-bodily. I'm, I'm using those words because I'm trying to get at what Aquinas talks about when he asks, when he talks about things that are corpora. Where something is a corpus, it's a body, a bodily thing, to, um, in the sense of like a celestial body, a heavenly body, just a thing that's like what we would call a physical thing. But the word material is a very dangerous word to use in this context um, because it has a special technical meaning and physical, that can encompass energy rather than, you know, so I'm going to say corporeal at least sometimes. The terminology is dangerous, but without terminology, we can't talk. So now in talking about the bodily and the non-bodily, the corporeal and the incorporeal, I'm going to be basing a good bit of what I say on some recent work done by my former student, Dr. David Corey. Um, I'm going to be leaving out enormous amounts of very important ideas and um, also all of the um, technical, the, 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 the textual work that he's done. But this is sort of based on a reading of Aquinas that he's come up with. He's found some really strange, interesting passages and made them make sense in a really um, helpful way. So I'm going to borrow some of that. But. I don't want to get credit for it. Um, I mean, I would love to get credit for it, but that would be wrong. So, okay. So let's start with a simple way to think about the corporeal and the incorporeal. A simple way that is not Aquinas' way. At the bottom of the scale, according to this way of thinking, there are purely corporeal substances like rocks. At the top, there are purely incorporeal substances like angels. And then... In the middle, there are humans who in some bizarre way are composed of a corporeal bit, the body, and an incorporeal bit, the soul. This is not Aquinas' approach. For Aquinas, there are basic physical forces or powers. Relying on medieval science, he thinks these are the powers of heating, cooling, wetting, and drying. Of course, that's wrong. But, I mean, it's wrong as a matter of physical theory, but hopefully his theory can be rethought in more up-to-date terms. And, what I'll, and the way I'll be presenting this doesn't rely on the idea that those four are the basic physical forces, but only the idea that there are basic physical forces, whatever they turn out to be, gravity or electricity or whatever. Okay, so there are basic physical forces, some substances 
can act in ways that are restricted to what can be accomplished by those forces. And that's the only way they act. So the way they act is restricted to what can be accomplished by those forces. Substances of that sort are purely corporeal. They can't act above and beyond the bottom level. Living things, however, can act above and beyond the bottom level. And this is a key element of the David Corey interpretation. Humans, cats, even plants, all these do act in ways that involve the basic physical forces. But they also act in ways that make use of the basic forces to accomplish goals that aren't reducible to those forces. For example, when a cat digests food, it does so by means of physical forces. For Aquinas, this would be heating. But the end goal isn't just something comprehensible in terms of physical forces. The food doesn't just get hotter. It becomes feline. It gets transformed into cat. That's what digestion is for. Or to take another example, perception makes use of physical forces. Your eardrum needs to be the right degree of tightness and then to receive the pressure wave coming in. But hearing isn't reducible to that. There's more to hearing than just your eardrum bouncing around and then certain neurological things happening. For Aquinas, the capacity to be acted on by these basic physical forces is matter. Matter on this conception is not stuff. It's a capacity for being receptive to the basic physical forces. And things are material if they can be acted on in this way. Substances that have matter also have what Aquinas calls form, which is a capacity not for being acted on, but for acting. And one kind of capacity for action that form gives is the capacity for acting on other material substances by means of the basic physical forces. A bowling ball, for instance, has a form that allows it to act on my foot by means of the force of gravity. For Aquinas, then, inanimate subjects, inanimate substances, non-living substances, act in a merely material way. They act in ways that never get beyond what the physical forces can do. They heat, they cool, they attract, they repel, but that's it. By contrast, animate substances, living organisms, can make use of such forces for higher ends. They can use them as instruments. It's a little bit like the way a chisel can't do anything but cut marble. That's all chisels can do. But a sculptor can use the physical power of marble cutting to achieve something that is not explicable wholly in physical terms, namely creating a beautiful likeness. I should add something special about that special sort of living organism that we like best, namely humans. Like rocks and so on, humans have powers that make use of physical forces in a merely physical way. We heat the rooms we are sitting in, for example just by being there. 
Like plants and non-rational animals, humans also have powers that make use of physical forces in a more than physical way, like digestion and sensation, but humans also have one special power that is not the application of a physical force at all, not even a merely instrumental application of a physical force. That power is the power of conceptual thought. When you grasp something using your intellect, the precise act of intellection does not make use of physical powers, and it is not performed by means of a corporeal organ. It's not even performed by the brain. Hold on. The brain is important, yes. The brain is responsible for mental images, and conceptual thinking is always accompanied by mental images. But having mental images, while necessary for conceptual thinking, isn't conceptual thinking itself. So this is a subtle point that uh, it plays an important role in Aquinas' account. Um, he has to ask what it's like when you're dead and you don't have your body anymore. So if you don't have your body anymore, you don't have your brain anymore, so you can't have mental images. And for Aquinas, then, it's very hard to understand how someone in that situation could do any thinking. And he basically has to invoke God to explain how souls apart from bodies can do any thinking um, until the final resurrection when they get their bodies back. Then things are much easier to understand. So the point of this remark is that while Aquinas argues that the precise activity of conceptual thinking is not itself a material or corporeal operation, he acknowledges and in fact insists that it's an incorporeal operation that has to be accompanied by and piggybacking on a corporeal operation, namely um, the use of the imagination for mental images. So if you told him, ah, but I want to show you brain scans, he wouldn't roll his eyes. He would say, oh yeah. Okay. So to sum up what we've seen about the corporeal and the incorporeal, and again, I want to give credit where credit is due and plug David Corey for his very convincing interpretation. Aquinas doesn't believe that there's an absolutely sharp divide between the corporeal and the incorporeal with rocks, plants, and dogs on the corporeal side and angels on the other and humans kind of straddling the divide with one component on the corporeal side and one component on the incorporeal side <clears throat> That's too simplistic. Instead, for Aquinas, there is indeed a bottom level of what is merely corporeal, but above that, there's a progressive scale of living things, living things that have progressively greater abilities to act in ways that go beyond the basic physical forces. Plants, non-rational animals, and humans. Humans even have an ability to act in a non-physical way, although it's a way that is accompanied by a physical um, action. And then finally, when we get to the angels, we do encounter beings that are truly non-corporeal, truly immaterial. Okay, so enough of that. Now I want to talk about potentiality and actuality, and then we'll kind of roll into essence and existence. And then you will be done. 
So let's move on to a new topic, actuality and potentiality, sometimes called act and potency. This is a distinction that is broader than the distinction between the corporeal and the incorporeal in the sense that this new distinction, the act-potency distinction, is found not only in the corporeal world but also in the incorporeal world. So in act and potency, that applies to angels too. Angels are totally non-corporeal. Um, so let's start with some examples. I could be sitting right now. I have the potenti potentiality or the potency to be sitting but that potentiality is not currently being actualized. What's actualized instead is my potentiality to be standing. Conversely, you have the potency to be standing, but that potency is not currently being actualized. What is actualized on your side is a potency to be sitting. So potency is about what can be, while actuality is about what is. And sometimes actuality is called just plain act, even when it's not a case of what we call an act in ordinary English, even when it's not a case of action. Some cases of potency are found in the merely corporeal world. Water in clouds has the potency to fall to the ground. Some potencies are found in the living world, Plants have the potency to draw water up through their roots. Cats have the potency to slay mice. Humans have the potency to give philosophy talks. And even angels have potencies. They have, for example, potencies to deliver surprising messages to Jewish teenagers. <laughs> if potencies are found in all these areas, so also are actualities or acts. The rain does fall. The plants do draw up water. Cats do kill mice. People do give philosophy talks and angels do deliver messages. Now let's connect this distinction to the distinction between accidents and substances. Sometimes, many times, a potency is a potency to acquire some accident. I have the potency to be sitting, and being sitting is an accident. It's an accident in the category of posture. I have the potency to weigh so and so many pounds, and that's a potency for an accident in the category of quantity, and so on. These potencies, if they are actualized, will take the form of me acquiring an accident. They are called accidental changes. You could put it this way, an accidental change is the actualization of an accidental potency. But there is another kind of potency, a potency of a much deeper sort. Right now, there is a certain number of squirrels in the world. Now, if two squirrels mate successfully, then there will be at least one more squirrel. This will be a change. But it won't be a change that takes the form of some substance acquiring a new accident, namely the accident of being a squirrel. When a squirrel is conceived, it's not as if something turns from not being a squirrel into being a squirrel. There's nothing of which you could say, this didn't used to be a squirrel, but now it is. 
A new squirrel comes to be, but nothing comes to be a squirrel. The genetic materials provided by the squirrel parents do not turn into a squirrel. Instead, they pass out of existence and are replaced by a squirrel. A little, tiny, embryonic squirrel. In accidental changes, then, a substance that already exists begins to have a new accident. This is the actualization of an accidental potency. In substantial changes, a new substance comes to exist for the first time. This is the actualization of a substantial potency. Now, let's take the distinction between act and potency one step further. It's related to the idea of substantial potency. This is where we're going now. When we have a substantial potency, a new substance comes to be. But it doesn't come to be absolutely from nothing. There has to be something there to begin with, something that has the capacity to be replaced or succeeded by the thing that the substantial potency is a substantial potency for. And of course, not just anything counts as what has to be there to begin with, because not just anything can lead to a new baby squirrel, for example. In fact, only genetic materials from parent squirrels can do that. So, you need squirrels to get squirrels, but where do squirrels come from in the first place? Of course, there's some evolutionary story to be told about that, but that's not the kind of question I have in mind. Going back farther and farther in time is not a way of answering this question. It's a way of avoiding it. I don't mean to ask what long, long ago came first. What I mean instead is this. What deep down is at the root of there being squirrels at all? Here's a thought. Apart from the question of parent squirrels, it's just a fact that there's a potency for there to be squirrels. Squirrel is a possible way for something to exist. It's possible for things to exist as squirrels. To think like this is to conceive of squirrel nature as a potency, a potentiality, a possible way to be. Concretely, to be sure, we encounter squirrel nature only in actual living squirrels, but we can also abstract from that and grasp the idea that squirrel is one of the options on the menu of being. Not as something to eat, but as something to be. So if squirrel nature is a potency, what is it for that potency to be actualized? The actuality of squirrel potency is existence as a squirrel. In other words, we can think of nature as a kind of potency and of existence as a kind of actuality. Squirrelness, squirrelitude, is a potential way to be. The existence of bona fide concrete squirrels is the actualization of that potency. This is a way of leading up to the famous Thomistic doctrine of existence. Aquinas says 
that existence is an act. He doesn't mean act in the sense of an action. Someone once sarcastically put the point like this. It's like breathing only quieter. <laughs> Existing right now. Right? That's, that's not what's meant. It's an act in the sense that it's the actualization of a potency, a potentiality to be this kind of being. The kind of being part is accounted for by nature or essence, and the actualization of it is accounted for by existence. Now, when I say accounted for by existence, I'm intentionally being vague. To make it less vague, I need to introduce you to a dispute among Thomists. It's a family dispute. Like family disputes, it's sometimes rather intense. What it boils down to is the following. Some Thomists think that there's a certain distinction that needs to be drawn, and others don't like drawing that distinction. I'll just tell you about the distinction and let you ponder it in your free time. Let's say we have an actual bona fide squirrel. It exists. It's just a fact that here, the potency for squirrel has been actualized. So let's call that existence, existence as a fact, or existence as fact. However, maybe there's another sense of existence, not existence as fact, but existence as act. Can you hear what I'm saying? Fact and act. They don't sound similar, do they? So, not existence as fact, maybe, but existence as act. We can think of the squirrel as having two constituting elements or internal explanatory principles. On the one hand, there's the nature of the squirrel. On the other hand, there's existence. This time, thought of not as the fact that the squirrel exists, but instead as an internal principle belonging to the squirrel that is responsible for the fact that the squirrel exists. The squirrel exists in the factual world because of its internal existence principle. That principle accounts for the squirrels being actual rather than merely potential. Existence in this sense is sometimes called the octus ascendi. So that's like two Latin words in a row. <laughs> Active being or something like that. Existence as the actus ascendi or existence as act is responsible for existence as fact. So drawing pictures is often dangerous, but so let me just mess this up a little bit here. So you have essence and then you have existence as act, and you put those together, and then you get as a result um, the existence as fact, of a kind of thing. 
So concretely in the world, like when you have an actual squirrel or something, it exists factually and it's a kind of thing. But the thought here is that inside that concretely existing thing of a certain kind, there's a distinction to be drawn between two sort of inner explanatory factors, one of them being its kind and the other being the actualization of that kind. It's an extremely subtle difference, and it's not like a difference between two things. It's, it's much subtler than that. Okay, as I mentioned, Thomists argue among themselves about whether Aquinas really makes this distinction, and if so, how exactly it ought to be understood. But one thing they would all agree on is this. The existence of something is not the same as its nature. They are different, and not just different in the sense that they are two ways of thinking about one thing. To put it a bit crudely, if you want to have something, it's not enough just to have its essence. You also need its existence, and that's different. Now, if it's something distinct, then it's fair to ask, what brings them together? What brings essence and uh, existence together? Of course, they aren't really two items, two thingies, that need to be brought together in a physical sense. It's not, for example, I mean, here's a way to think of it that's like really tempting and totally wrong. You think of essence, essences as a bunch of those little tiny sponges that children have. And then existence is like water. And you pour the water on the little sponges and they kind of poof up. And now you have beings. Like, that's not right. Because those little sponges are already actual, you see. So it's not like that. But there's still some kind of difference. Not every nature is actualized. Go ask a dodo bird. They'll tell you. So... If they really are different, then something must be responsible for the fact that sometimes they are found together. And if that's right, then it's reasonable to ask, what is so responsible? What explains the fact that some potentialities are actualized? This is an important question. It's not a question I'm going to answer right now. It's not really a question that we're going to answer today. But stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you.